0: not a single thing in life, in the world, no category in our lives, whether we're talking about our work lives, our um, uh, family lives, our recreation, whatever the, our civil life, whatever the case may be, everything has to be lived in relationship with God. Uh, Of course, we know many people do not do that explicitly, but of course, even that is a relationship. It's a broken relationship. It's a relationship of rebellion. But it is a relationship, so everything, everything has to be lived in relationship with God. And then we saw in the second question, it answered the question of how then do we know what is the proper way to live in a relationship with God? And that question told us that that answer is found in the Scripture and only in the Scripture. And we looked at the Bible, we talked about a little bit of its nature, and we saw the absolute necessity of Scripture. Like we said, the Scripture does not speak about everything. It doesn't teach us calculus, for example, but it has something to say about everything. And again, we come back to this idea that it informs every aspect of our lives so that everything that we do and everything that we're involved in ultimately has to be shaped by what we read in Scripture. Scripture tells us how we are then to live a life that glorifies God, a life in relationship with God. And then last week in particular, the question began to unpack Scripture, asking, well, what does the Scripture actually teach us? And it broke it down into basic categories. What the Bible teaches about God and what the Bible teaches about our response, our duty to God. And you'll remember that one of the key things that we said, when we take what it teaches about God, that includes also what it teaches about man because God is the creator of man and, and so on and so on. So uh, what we saw there last week was that that's going to define The catechism from this point on, starting in question four, which we have today through question 37, it'll unpack for us what is God and what are we to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man and comes in questions 38 through 107. That's the end of the catechism. So that's the way it's going to break down. And as we saw last week, that order was very important. You can't do, you know, what to believe and how to behave were the two parts of the question. We saw we can't really do, uh, rather, this end, can't really behave until you have the right belief. That was a key thing that we looked at last week. So that sets the stage for finally past the introduction, and we're now into the actual uh, content of what the Bible teaches. So let's go ahead and jump into question four. And I'm not going to do what I've been doing, where I've been telling you all here, look up this passage, look at that passage. That didn't work out as well um, because I kept skipping passages. So I will still ask you to look up passages, so have your Bibles ready, Uh, but I think I'll just do it on the fly. For now, let's go ahead and grab your catechism. Again, you can either have, I know you all keep it in your breast pocket uh, or perhaps on your phone. If not, you can grab the Trinity Hymnal page 869-ish, somewhere around there, 870-ish. Might be the best way to do it. Which one is it? 869. 869. All right. And there we have question number four. So, we're going to break this question down. This is a simple question. What is God? So we want to define God. And before we answer it, let me just say this. When we talk about, there's a lot more we're going to say about God. This is just setting up a sort of basic definition. There's all sorts of people say, well, God is unknowable. God is, you know, you can't know God. Is that really true? Because Is God unknowable? Mm-hmm. I see, Daniel, you wanted to say something. That's right, that's right, yeah. J.I. Packer's famous book. Yes, Knowing God, and one of the things he points out is it's true that we cannot know God in his fullness. At the very least, just for, not because of sin, primarily, it's just the fact that we're finite and he's infinite. We'll talk about that infinite aspect. We can never know him in his fullness, But he has revealed something to us. And that something which is revealed in Scripture is knowable. In fact, let's take a look at John chapter 1, where I put my Bible. John chapter 1 should be uh, verse 18. That's not my Bible. I had my, oh, somebody hid it behind the shoe bread. So let's look up John chapter 1. This is a key, even though it's not directly in the question, and we haven't even gotten to the question. There's so much to do today. But let's take a look at verse 18. Would somebody read John 1, 18? All right, thank you. No one has ever seen God. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So we're going to keep our finger in that text uh, because he's invisible, because he's a spirit. Okay? Uh, No one has ever seen God. Then it says, the only God. uh, Now, this only God here, uh, some translations. Does anybody have the New King James? What does the New King James say, Beth, on that? The only begotten Son. So see, the word that's translated here is only, the only Son, or rather the only God that we just read in the ESV is the same word, monogamous, that's used for only begotten in John 3.16 that we're all familiar with. You know, the, uh, So it's that only begotten. So it's clearly a reference to the Son, even though the best scholars don't believe that it actually says Son, but the New King James wanted to be helpful and introduced the word son in there to make it clear. But I think it's clear just from the fact that it's that same word, the only begotten, even though it's not translated as only begotten, but that's what it is. So, very important fact. Scripture does reveal something about God. And that which is revealed is knowable. But the only one who can reveal it is he who is the mediator, as Paul tells us and that's Jesus. You cannot know God apart from Christ. Our next-door neighbors in the mosque cannot know God despite the fact that they say that they worship the same God of Abraham, the same God that Jews worship, the same God that Christians worship. They do not. Our our Jewish friends, they do not worship the God that has revealed himself because they reject the Son. God has revealed himself as, and we'll talk about this more next week, when we look at, um, at the Trinity, but God has revealed himself as a Trinity. The fact that that is rejected is, means that they do not actually know God. And First John, the whole letter of First John, those five little chapters, keeps repeating that same thing. You cannot know God. You cannot, pro- you cannot approach him, but you cannot even know him apart from Christ. Jesus, as our great prophet, remember, he's prophet, priest, and king, and part of that is he mediates that truth to us, and he reveals that truth to us. So very, very important, even as we enter into this. So what does the Scripture then teach us? Let's go back to the Catechism. What is God? And it tells us God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And we're going to take apart that definition today. It tells us what is God? God is, and then we're going to put it here in two cat- in, uh, three categories, a spirit. Well, I'm going to put a line here. And he is infinite. Am I doing this too small? Probably. He's eternal. He's unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. There we go. You see how these break down? That's our answer. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So let's begin to unpack that a little bit and see if we can arrive at some of the, like like we've said before, catechism gives us sort of an initial surface answer that works with little kids that are four years old that you can teach them. But then we can dig a little deeper and find a little bit more than that. So God is a spirit. Let's start with that. What does that mean, spirit? When you think of spirit? Without a body. In fact, that is the answer. Um, Anybody else want to add to that? Spirit is one of those things that's uh, very, very hard to define. It's one of those that you sit there and say, okay, I, I get the concept but I can't really define it. And sure enough, people have tried. The idea that we have a spirit, that there's something other than the physical, but beyond that, we really can't say a whole lot. Uh, Now, it's not referring to uh, physical things that you cannot see. That's a different uh, um, category. Certainly, invisibility is a part of it, but there are many things that are invisible and yet are physical. So the key part is what Phil uh, who, of course, was raised on good old Heidelberg Catechism stuff. Um, kids. But you guessed very good. <laughs> the, I was just going to say, this is the beauty of teaching catechism to kids. is it, it just never goes away. It's like I still, you know, think of when we're up there singing hymns, you know, hymns that are familiar, older hymns. In my mind, I'm still hearing them in the original in which they were written in Spanish. Um, what, what? Did I hear Latin? Um, but, um, yeah, because, you know, you I, I didn't attend an uh, English-speaking church I was 23. So you learn that stuff, and it just sticks with you. Same thing with catechism and all that. It's good stuff. Okay, so when we talk about spirit, yeah, the key thing that we're looking at here is defining God as not part of the physical world. He's not physical. Now, it is not yet said that he is... The creator because of that, because he also did create spirit beings, angels, and ultimately fallen angels, which we call today demons. But those are also just spirit, Uh, but they were, in fact, uh, created. So spirit does not necessarily mean uncreated. Right. And it's one of the interesting things is that uh, the catechism, it says God is a spirit. It doesn't say God is spirit. But it says God is a spirit. There's no wasted words in the catechism. Today, you know, people talk about just spirit out there. So it's just general, especially um, some of you who are a bit younger. You grew up in this. Uh, you've never known, let me put it this way, your, your culture in which you've grown up is greatly affected by New Age thinking. Uh, came, you know, if you want to look at how pop culture developed, just look at the 60s and look at uh, the Beatles and then bringing in the beginnings of Eastern mysticism. It's not that it was completely absent. You'll find it in the 20s amongst the Bohemians and so on. Uh, You know, uh, writers like F. Scott Fitzgerald and all these uh, guys who were hanging out in Paris as expats and whatever. A lot of that stuff was around in the 1920s. Even earlier you can go into the 1890s and find a a lot of that um, with the spiritists and whatever, but it really became mainstream in the U.S. starting in the 60s and started going out. So that New Age philosophy, as it's sometimes called, it's nothing but Eastern mysticism, has uh, put very much into the mainstream. You hear it now everywhere, but this idea that there, if we do believe in a higher power or so on, it's very easy to kind of think of a just a, a spirit force out there. And, of course, the, the number one primer that we've had in in the world... On that philosophy, anybody know what it is? Star Wars, absolutely, yeah. When that movie came out, and, you know, I remember articles that I would read talking about it's because George Lucas was a Buddhist and he wanted to promote that and he very successfully promoted many of the aspects. No emotion coming, you know, okay, we can talk about this some other time. But the point is, God is not just part of the spirit world. He's not just, it's not a pantheistic view of God. It's, you know, connected. He is a spirit of the spirits that exist. He is one of those spirits. Of course, by one doesn't mean that he's just any old one, but he is one, and it identifies him in his, it gives him identity, individual identity. So, anyway, let me uh, not spend too much time on just talking about spirit, uh, because again, as always, we can say a lot here. Um, yeah, let's, there's a lot of cool passages I had here to look at, uh, and we won't do those. 1 Corinthians 2.11, what man knows the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him? So the idea that spirit is personal, right? There's a personal aspect. It's not an impersonal force. You know, the force be with you, the spirit be with you, God be with you. No, there's a personal aspect to it. We've already looked at John one eighteen. Uh, no one has ever seen God, it starts by saying. "Right, The very idea that God is unseeable because he is a spirit. He is non-corporeal, does not exist in the material world. As the Children's Catechism says, he does not have a body like men. So that is a key part in understanding spirit. Now, the question comes up, how then can you know God? How can you see God? And this is where we begin to look at these these uh, attributes that we've put up there, because that's what those are. Those are attributes. There's another way of thinking about it, and let me see if I can put this up here. So this is an analogy. Like all analogies, it's not going to be perfect, but here's our friend standing in front of a mirror that has his reflection in it. I'm not going to be able to do this just right, right? We can see this person in that reflection, in that image, right? So man is made in the image of God. And when we talk about what does it mean to be the image, uh, the image is not the reality. It is not. The thing that's being imaged right so in one sense the mirror really does reflect aspects of our little guy here it really does show his smile it shows his hair color it shows his eye colors all that does it accurately and yet it's not the reality it's just an image and there's a very real sense in which we as human beings reflect aspects of God so that in one sense you can see God as it were, in that. John Calvin speaks about this at the very, very beginning of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, how just looking at men automatically ultimately leads us to looking at God. He says it doesn't matter whether you start talking about God, eventually it'll bring you down to look at his image, or whether you start with humans, you'll eventually work your way up to the creator himself. But the way this breaks down then is if you look at this, It says that he is a spirit, and then it gives us these attributes about God. And some of you have ever studied any um, kind of formal study on theology. You know that we say that God has these attributes, some of which are known as incommunicable or communicable. Anybody heard those? Okay. So the incommunicable, which basically just means these are attributes that are unique to God and are not going to be found in his image. And then the communicable attributes are those things which we share as his image. So here's going to be your incommunicable. Here are the ones that are shared, the communicable. So let's take a look at this. The way the catechism question breaks down is it says God is a, and these are not just all attributes all in a row, spirit, infinite, eternal, it really says God is a spirit. Then it tells us what kind of spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, And then it tells us that these three things apply to all this. So, in other words, he is infinite in his being. He is eternal in his being. He is unchangeable in his being. He is infinite in his wisdom. he's eternal in his wisdom, unchangeable in his wisdom, and so on. You see how that works? So, these actually modify these, the way the catechism question is written, and it's written correctly. So, let's see if we can just, time we have remaining, break this down just a little bit When it says that God is infinite, uh, again, we can use those words. We can define them. We can uh, describe them to a certain extent. And because we are finite, we can never truly comprehend even what it is that we're saying. But that does not make it uh, uh, any less true. The fact of mystery, and I'm using mystery here, not in a whodunit Agatha Christie, you know, Sherlock Holmes kind of way, But mystery in the sense that there are things that are incomprehensible. Now, there's some things that are a mystery because you don't know them, but you can discover them. Right? So, if I ask you, what is my middle name? You might say, well, that's a mystery. I'll have to research that. And, you know, you can come to discover what it might be. Uh, Right? That kind of thing. But then there are some things that will never be known and remain mysteries. And so, just because that's true, uh, just because it, it's a mystery, does not make the fact less true. Right? In other words, my, the fact that whether I know it or not does not determine its truthfulness. The reason I say that is because we live in a postmodern culture where the idea is that what is true is because I declare it to be so. Postmodernism, which uh, claims... Uh, that it has divorced itself from the modernism of the 20th century, the hubris of the fact that we can know all things. Postmodernism has basically said we cannot know all things except what I deem. It doesn't quite recognize that's what it's saying, but except, uh, postmodernism says I am the ultimate authority. I deem, whether this is my narrative, your narrative, I deem whether it's worthy of my belief. So I am God because I determine truth. That is what postmodernism is. It says your truth is relative, and I will weigh what is before me, and I will choose, and I will determine. Modernism, at the very least, well, I believe that it could arrive at the extent of knowing everything, and what it knew, it knew without question, which is why in the fifties scientists and doctors were revered. Today, your doctor tells you something, you're like, he doesn't know what he's talking about, because the internet said, and you know, off you go. The bottom line is we. Are the final authority in postmodernism. So I just wanted to be sure to, that you guys hear that when we speak of mystery, it does not mean that it's any less true just because I didn't get it. Okay. But the mystery is that God is infinite, which just simply means that He is without limit, without limit. So when we look at these things, His power, He's omnipotent, right? Is without limit. Things like that. Uh, you may say, well, it doesn't say anything about His knowledge. Uh, put that under truth. Because knowledge is knowing what is true, so that is without limit. So that's what it means to be infinite. The fact that He's eternal, in one sense, that also fits into the infinite part, but it means that He always exists. Now, somebody might say, wait a minute, that should not be incommunicable because we're eternal. We were created to live forever. Several things we're going to say on that. First of all, uh, if that is true, and it is true that we're going to live forever, whether one goes to hell or one goes to heaven, it still is forever, but if that's true, it's only because God sustains us. He could at any moment withdraw, right? Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us, in fact, it says that it's the Son who not only created but who sustains. He, If, if Jesus just withdrew his sustaining power, we would just blink out of existence, and it, it's not, it's not being dead, it's being completely, nothing would exist. So if we are continuing forever, it's only because of God. There's that dependency that needs to be said. But in the end, it really still does not become eternal, although we use that language. Because eternal means no beginning and no end. And every single bit of creation has had a beginning. We might say everlasting. That might be a better word to use. But not eternal. In that regard. So in that regard, God is eternal. And then unchangeable, sometimes called immutable. It means that God does not change. Uh, God doesn't have to grow. God doesn't have to uh, discover more about himself. God, you know, is unchanging. Wait a minute, Pastor. What are you, about those times where we see that it says that God changed his mind. I read that in Scripture. Okay, hang on to that. We'll talk about that uh, if we have a little bit of time uh, here at the end. Uh, It has to do with things like um, even explaining uh, how the Bible says, uh, you know, the hand of God or God sees. If He's a spirit, right? There's no hand; it doesn't have eyeballs or anything. So let me just hold on to that. But God does not change; He is immutable, and that means that all these things you can trust. If God tells you that I'm going to take care of you or I'm love, He's not love this week and hate next week. He is unchangeable. So those three. He is a spirit that is infinite, eternal, and changeable, and those three qualities apply individually to each one of these other attributes. So in his being, he is infinite, right? There's no limits to his being. We're limited beings. We can't be everywhere at once and all that other stuff and so on. It's an eternal being, always been around. He doesn't change. And the same thing with his wisdom, right? Uh, He knows how things are, his power, what he can do and not do. Oh, Pastor! Can God create a square circle? If He were truly, you know, unlimited in His power, He can create a square circle. Uh, anybody here ever take a philosophy class where the philosopher brought that up? No, am, am I? Okay, at one. Does anybody know what the right answer to that is? anybody want to venture a guess? How do we answer that? Yes, it's actually called a trivial question, right? Uh, and in philosophy, what's trivial means that in the end it's actually zero. It's nonsense, uh, or sometimes called nonsensical. And of course, we use the word nonsense in colloquial. But in in, in study of logic and philosophy, nonsense is actually a technical term. Uh, you're talking about things that do not make sense. So just because you mention two words uh, together does not mean that they're and so if there's no limit on God's power that He can't do something nonsensical. Um, the skeptic, the oh well, sure, he sure. Right, and and so you get to sophistry, which is where that word comes from, is from this idea of just twisting, you know, what you do. Today we have a whole elite class that exists in you know in that area and is very good at, at using that kind of kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so his holiness, his separateness from the world. And remember, God is holy. The word holy just means separate, standing apart, set apart. And God is separate not just because of his moral righteousness as opposed to our sinfulness, because there was a day in which we were not sinful before the fall, and man was, uh, was uh, in that regard, morally uh, righteous. Even then, God was holy. He will always stand apart from his creation. He is not his creation, but he stands apart from his creation. He will always be the creator, and we will always be the creature and the creation around us. So in that regard, God is always holy. His justice, what is good and right. Goodness. Now, some people sit there and say, you know what's missing from this whole list is love. Love is missing. Uh, And that's true. It is. And there's been a lot of ink spilled on whether that was just because, you know, th- these were all dour Presbyterians, right? That's how that's you know, the guys who wrote this all together. And then it's like after they walked out, they're like, oh, you kind of forgot love. Well, it's too late. We sent it to the printer. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> no. All the, all the, um, and of course they thought a little differently in their use of the English language. Not all that differently, but all the commentaries of the time and since then also point out that that's super super, um, intended if you wanted the way we think of as love here under goodness. Under goodness, the idea that um, uh, to be loving is a good thing, but actually love comprehends. It goes much further than that and all these other qualities because God himself is love. You don't see scripture saying God is justice per se, although he is just. Uh, It does speak about Christ being wisdom himself and holiness and righteousness himself. Uh, the idea then that all of these things are uh, embodied by love. So again, if we can unpack that uh, in another setting, we'll do that. Again, we are shorten our time here. The last one is truth, which as I already mentioned, can also comprehend the idea of knowledge. Uh, and Jesus himself has pointed out that he defines truth. There is no truth apart from God. Van Til once said, every fact must be Christ interpreted, which is absolutely true, and that also applies to our knowledge of God himself. So, okay, we're almost out of time. That's a very brief overview of how these three components of the answer work together. I've been talking almost for 40 minutes. Questions, comments before we move on and try to cover some other things. Maybe even look at some scripture passages that do actually (laughs) defend what we just said. No, that's all crystal clear. It's either, it was so brilliantly uh, uh, presented that you all understand or completely muddled and well, I have no idea what he's talking about. Okay, so let's see what we can talk about here. Um, yeah, I don't think we have time to talk about that. Okay, so when we look at this idea of seeing God and these these attributes that are, uh, communicable and incommunicable. We share these, right, with with God. Uh, we can be wise. We can execute power. We can do things. We have power to do things. We can be holy and so on. We can know things. We can study things. We can be good to one another. Every one of those will not be infinite, eternal, unchangeable. Our goodness changes, right? Some moments were good, some moments were not so good. Uh, Just ask any married couple and they'll explain to you that those moments, you know, the person doesn't, the same person and yet there's a change in their attributes. So all of us uh, have these attributes, but they are mutable, they are changeable. They're not infinite. Our love is, you know, doesn't go on forever. One of the Passages that I tend to use a lot is in 1st John chapter 4 when I do weddings you would say well Why would you pick that? Oh, it has that lovely, you know 1st John 4 8 God is love But if you read a little bit more around it, which we do and when I do weddings We quickly discover your love is going to run out That's a you know, just imagine you're telling that to the bride and groom you love one another. It's not enough Now you don't stop there You point out to them. It's not enough. It's going to fail Uh, You've heard some of you've heard me use the jelly donut uh, uh, analogy. You know, there's a jelly donut with all its jelly goodness on the inside, and what we do as married couples is we stick a little straw in the other person, and we suck all the goodness out of them. And, And as long as we're doing that and we're each meeting one's needs, then we're all lovey dovey. Oh, you're wonderful. Oh, you're perfect. Oh, you're so attractive. And sooner or later, something happens, and all that little lovey dovey good stuff on the inside runs out. Now it might be replenished. Over time, but it runs out. And again, if you've been married for any length of time, you know that sooner or later you fail to give your spouse the things that he or she needs. It just is the way it is. And they fail you. So we always have to remind them you do have love. And it can be real love if it's rooted in Christ. But it is always going to be finite, it will always run out. And that is why we have to build our relationship on Christ. His love is infinite. And so when we tap into his love, then we have enough to continue giving. Does that make sense? And that really applies, just as we say that about married uh, folks, uh, or really any relationship. Uh, but that that applies to all the different attributes and so on. We are limited in all of our different things. But when we rest on the one who is infinite, then that makes up for it. Does that make sense? You can see how that goes? Okay? Okay. S- That's actually not a silly question at all. So Phil is saying he's got a silly question, but it's not. He's saying when we pray, how do we envision God? So uh, one of the things that we want to talk about when we get to the Ten Commandments, which we get to later uh, in uh, in the catechism, is this aspect right here. God is a spirit. So we don't actually see God. We will never see God. Even in the new heavens and the new earth, you will never see God. But take a look to answer that question. Uh, let's look at First John, chapter one, not John chapter one, but let's look at First John chapter one. And if somebody will just read um, uh, just the first three verses, or even four, just to be complete. Okay? Thank you. So here is the Apostle John. Let's start from the end of what he's saying. He's saying, I'm writing so that you can have fellowship with us who are already believers. But ultimately, that fellowship is with God and, he says, in the Son. So this idea, again, that you cannot know the Father, you cannot know God unless you are in fellowship with him, you're in union with him. And it only comes through this one who they have seen whom they have heard, who they have touched, or he's, he repeats, seen by saying, have looked upon and have touched with our hands. He's saying, this this phenomena of God taking on human flesh. We've we've seen it, we've handled it. It's, it's real. It's real. And he was manifest. He He the word manifest in Greek. We don't use the word manifest that way anymore, so maybe our translators need to start thinking of a more contemporary word to be used here. Uh, it still has that, that older use, but the word manifest here made himself known. And, and, w- and what is he saying? He's saying life itself. So he's throwing out all these things that are in his mind. You know, he's going to get there. It's the sun that he's talking about, but this is life itself. That which gives us life and is life Made himself available and known right in front of, him. And, and and we've experienced it is what he's saying. We've seen it, we've touched it, we've heard it. Right. So, who do we pray when we pray? You know, what do we envision? Well you, you can't envision God. And I'm sorry, the Simpsons view is, of you know, God sitting up in heaven with a beard beginning to approach mine or whatever. You know, uh, doesn't doesn't qualify. The best that we can do. And by the best, I really mean it is the best, is Jesus. Uh, you might say, "Well, I haven't seen Jesus either." So, but we do see Jesus, just not in the sense that I could say, "Does he have blue eyes? Does he have brown eyes? Does he have long hair?" Does he? You know, we don't know, and we, and we um, uh, intentionally do not know, according to the Scripture, so that we don't get hung up on those things, so that we don't start a cult of all the blonde-haired people, you know, because that's what Jesus was, blonde-haired, or, you know, all the left-handed people because Jesus was left-handed, or whatever, you know. we, We have no idea what those things are. We just do know the one thing that He is, that all of us is, which is? Human. More than human. Not just human, but still fully human. And so, it is through Jesus that we see God. By the way, Jesus shows us all these attributes, right? And so we actually, so one of the things that we see in Scripture, because Scripture reveals God, uh, is you don't get, you get statements like First John 4, 8, God is love. But generally, the Scripture is not a systematic theology book. And there's not, okay, the first three chapters and part two is going to define God's attributes like a systematic theology does. Instead, what do you see? God redeems a people out of Egypt who don't deserve it, who were sinful people, and he's long-suffering with them even as they continue rebelling. So in history, in action, because that's all history is, it's a record of action, God reveals his attributes, right? It's one thing to say, that person is very kind, that person is very humble, and then you live with that person and you work with that person and you figure out this person is very kind, this person is very humble. In most cases, people don't arrive at your workplace or school or whatever and say and have a little sign saying, I'm kind or I'm an idiot or any of those things. right? How do you find it out? You observe it. You see it in practice. You see it how they behave and how they treat others and so on. And then you sit there and you say, yeah, he's a moron. Um, okay, don't say that. That's not something good to say. Uh, but, you know, you might sit there and say, yeah, he's less loving than he could be, or, or he's actually very gracious, right, and that kind of thing, uh, right? She's a very generous person, and so on and so on, and you see it by what they do, and so the Scripture in history, redemptive history, reveals God's character. We see it in what he does, um, and ultimately that character is put forward in Christ, who is the Word, and by the Word, That that, that word is picked, that word, word, word logos is picked because if this is the revelation of God, the word, then Jesus himself is the ultimate revelation, the ultimate speaking of God and who he is. And it's an action word. In fact, in Spanish, which is the the language you'll all learn in heaven, um, John 1 is translated, in the beginning was, and logos is translated, in the beginning was the verb, The idea of a word, but it's, what do we all learn in second grade? A verb is an action word. You don't know God apart from his action. Jesus is the perfect manifestation of God in action. And you see all those attributes. How do we know that God is just? The cross. How do we know that God is love? The cross. (laughs) Right? He goes to the cross because he's just and he's holy and sin can't be uh, um, uh, tolerated. It must be uh, dealt with. And yet, he's a gracious God of compassion who has mercy on people who are sinners. And so the cross also reveals that, you see, in action. So, okay, so good, I, I didn't really answer your question because it's unanswerable, Phil, all other than to say, what do I envision? I I personally do not envision, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, some grandfather in the sky, which is the image that's been tried, that they've tried to put in our mind, an inoffensive being who just wants to pass out candy to children and all that stuff. Uh, that's, that's the good view of God, and there's a, the evil one that he's just a mean old man, that kind of thing. The only way I can envision it is through Christ. Well, you know, I'm going to tell you what my, what my old systematic professor told me, you know, 30-some years ago now. Uh, he was saying, we all have a conception of Jesus in our mind. I mean, he's a human being. When you read, you, you see a person walking in Palestine and doing stuff, right? And he's talking to this person, and he's doing that, and he's breaking bread. and all. You have a picture of a man. That's fine. Hang on with it. God knows that we're physical. and we, we can't comprehend. Like, you know, this will be a story for another day. When we all die before the Lord comes our bodies remain here, our souls ascend into heaven, and we call that the intermediate state, because it's not the, despite what a lot of Baptists, oh did I say that out loud, um, teach, you know, our final thing is not, oh, I want to die and go to heaven, because you're in a disembodied state. What's worse is when they say that, and they even think that there's a body up there. You ever seen that in a funeral? That's not Aunt Mildred. That's not, yes, it is Aunt Mildred. She's in the coffin, she's dead, but that's not Aunt Mildred. She's in heaven right now in her new body dancing, no, she's not. Her body's right there. And when Jesus returns, that body will be raised and united to the soul. But what it means is when they ask well, what is the intermediate state like? We don't really know because none of us has been there. But we do know one thing. We think that we're going to be like, able to perceive things. You can't even perceive stuff without your eyeballs and your ears and, you know, your, your ability to touch and taste and so on. You can't. Even when you think in your mind, everything you think is physical. Think about that. You need a brain to think. You need chemical. It's not just that. Your brain is, you know, because that's what uh, the seculars do want to tell us, that you're you're nothing more than just, you know, these chemical impulses, from just firing neurons and all that, and it's all made, made up. Uh, tell that, when one of those guys tells you that, just deck them and say, hey, it's just it's just an illusion of, you know, what you felt. Okay. Uh, don't do that because you'll be in jail. But um, <laughs> sometimes you want to. Okay. Uh, but the idea basically is you're unable to comprehend. So uh, even in the intermediate state, it doesn't happen. Everything needs to be put to us in terms that we can grab a hold of. And that's why Christ is so very real in that regard. Uh, even, but it's okay to have a conception in your mind. Our, my systematic perf- theology professor just said, "Just, just run with that. That's all you've got." He knew that we were made for that, so he knows that when we read the word, we're going to conceive of a man doing things. And that's okay. So, so Ann. what? Did, what? And yeah. Well, a person who's agnostic basically says they do not reject. And it, you can be agnostic about all sorts of things, right? Uh, are the Mets going to win the World Series this year? I'm agnostic. I don't really know. That's all it means. Agnostic means without knowledge. It means I don't really know. So now I, we all want the Mets to win, but we don't know if they're going to win. Um, so, I'm agnostic. It doesn't, but when we talk about belief in God, that person is saying, oh, look, I'm not rejecting belief in God, but I'm not accepting it either. I'm just, I don't know, which is just a cowardly way out. But that's all that basically means. If that's what you're asking, I'm not, yeah. It just basically, mean I don't know. So, all right, uh, Scott. Back to those yeah. Right. Um, going back to
1: the, our conception of infinite, and always think about my the dogs. They don't know where I go, they don't know how airplanes fly, they don't know any of that. Or, ring the bell, they run to a certain table where the trees are. They, they know a few words, they have a finite mind. We know more, but man is so arrogant to think that if we can't see it, it doesn't exist.
0: And, and yep. Right. No, absolutely right. And, I, you know, I think the analogy of comparing it to your dogs, uh, yeah, they know, they do, all that, and yet it's not on the same scale. I think it even goes beyond that with God, but it's an analogy that we can run with, you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, and uh, even when we talk about things like knowledge, God knows things, and it's not just that he knows more of them, but he also knows them on a quality at a level that we can't understand. And some of you have heard me talk about that. You know, Van Til used to talk about analogical knowledge, which some people, oh, I don't understand. You're saying that we can't really know the same thing God knows. It's like this. Um, Front of my Bible, back of my Bible. Front has my name on it. Back has my name on it. Side is that red, gold, uh, whatever, glittery thing. You can see all that. You can comprehend it what's on the other side? You know that on this other side is the front with my name on it because you have a memory and so on. If I flip it, you don't, <gasps> I'm surprised. You know that. You can't see it all at once. So even your, your level of knowledge is limited. God at this very moment can quote unquote see all six sides of this at once. Top, bottom, left, right, front, back. That means he comprehends this in a way differently than you and I do. But what has been presented to us is still knowable, right? So there's those things. Let me end with this. Oh, well, where's 10.05? Let me end with this thing of, since we've been talking about God seeing and all that, I mentioned that we would just touch upon this. There's all these passages, so I'm going to just read this. It'll be just better. Um, there are passages um, like Joshua 4.24. It talks about the hand of the Lord, right? Uh, 1 Kings 15.5, the eyes of the Lord. Um, We know in Exodus 24, 24, 19, that the elders saw God. Scott was getting at that, you know, these visions. Uh, Moses is put in the cleft of the rock and sees the back of God. Exodus 24, the elders saw the feet of God. Uh, We see that in in, in Revelation and so on. They're all kind of wrestling. So we put those under this idea of uh, anthropomorphisms. The idea of some of it is metaphorical. God's hand is mighty to save we did not really think that God stretched out a physical hand and slapped, let's say, Pharaoh around and so on. But the idea that he was able to move, of course, his creator, it was trivial for him, but he was able to move uh, 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 events in, on earth in such a way as to deliver his people. And We talk about his hand. Uh, but what about those times in which they actually did see something? And that's an important point. Uh, Joshua, Jap- in chapter 1, God shows up, and he's talking to the to uh, to the um, uh, the captain of the army, the and he's talking about the angelic army, the captain of the hosts, right? So, or, or Abraham, uh, right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, these three visitors come, but one of them is God. You know that because he says, "Shall I reveal? Shall we reveal that?" It's not a royal we. It's that we of the, the Trinity. Shall we reveal to, to Abraham what we're about to do in, in Sodom? And when the other two angels, uh, the other two in that regard, the other two beings leave, the two angels that he sends to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham talks to this remaining one, and he refers to him as the God of heaven. So he knew that he had, in that moment, Yahweh was before him. What's going on there? What's going on in 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 uh, uh, with Joshua? What's going on with Abraham? What are they actually seeing? Is it a manifestation? Is it a you know a vision? Is whatever? So we refer to that as a theophany, an appearance of the second person of the Trinity, because Jesus, while Jesus the man that we know today has a beginning, his birth through Mary, and so on, uh, Jesus. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, has always had as his main role that of the Word. He's, remember, he didn't start being the Word with Jesus. He's always been the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He always has had part of his role is the manifestation of God in action. So this is a manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who appears just like angels will take on. Those two angels that destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, they're spirit beings, and yet God grants them physical form for that purpose. He takes on physical form. So there, it does happen in Scripture where there is physical form taken on by the second person of the Trinity. Um, there's more that we can say, but let's go ahead and stop there. Um, I did say we're going to talk about what happens when God changes his mind. Okay, in 30 seconds, uh, you read that in certain places, like where it says in in Genesis 6, God saw the evil of all men. You know, this is right before the flood, and he basically says, you know, these guys. Uh, And it uses the language, he repented. Or other times when he says, I'm going to strike Nineveh down unless Nineveh does this and this and that and repents. And then they repent, so God changes his course of action. He was going to judge them. Oh, so he changed and so on. Did God actually change? Or did the people change? The people changed. Because what was it? It's always a conditional promise or a conditional statement. Everything God says is a promise. If he says, I'm going to do this, he doesn't say, I pinky swear. He does do that a couple of times when he says, because you guys are so weak and you don't get it, that when I say it, it just is. I swear by my own name, just so you can hear that. But if the fact, the fact God just says, I'm going to do something, that's sufficient. So God says, unless A, unless you do this or do that, then this is going to happen. It's always a conditional statement. God was just, God, is just to use those terms. He's just and he's going to punish sin, and God is loving and compassionate, right, those two things, and gracious. Was he ungracious beforehand? He was just a judge that was going to judge them for their sin. No, he was just a compassionate God because he gave them a chance. He gave them an opportunity to repent. And then they repented, and he withheld justice, or withheld them being punished. Was he any less just? No, because he was going to take it on his son later. And you, you see, God's character never changed. What changed was the people and their response to God. Okay, we can, okay that was more than 30 seconds, but we do need to stop. So let's go ahead and do that. If you have any other questions, too bad. Uh, We'll take them up some other time. Um, No, for real, if you just get a hold of me, uh, or if we need to, we'll continue next week. Most of these things we're going to flesh out. This is just an introduction, and now, like I said, questions 4 through 37 will deal with with God. And so we'll have a lot more to talk about. Next week is the Trinity. Ooh, that's going to be also lots of fun. So let's go ahead and pray and get ready for worship. Father in heaven, uh, we can't even begin, as we've said, to fully comprehend even the things that have been revealed to us. We will spend all of eternity learning about you, you who are infinite and matchless in all these different things that we've been looking at, and how thankful we are that you are infinitely and unchangeably good, and you are good to us, and you have shown us who you are, you have shown us what you have done for us in Christ, you have done these things for us in Christ. And, Father, how privileged the people we are. We thank you for this. Help us to continue learning more about you through these dead teachers who put together the catechism for us and who really have given us so many wonderful tools to understand uh, what the Scripture teaches. Help us to not just be simply head knowledge. Help it to sink deeply into the very marrow of our bones so that it will affect the way that we live so that we might indeed glorify you and enjoy you forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.